Hey everyone, welcome back to The Table, Conversations on Youth Justice. I'm your host, Hussein Hadri. Before we get started today, I wanted to make a quick request of everyone listening. This show is meant to inform you about the juvenile legal system in Michigan. But the more fundamental purpose of this show is to change the narrative about youth justice in our state. We're looking to transform the conversations people have at home about youth justice in courtrooms, the legislature. Step by step, topic by topic, episode by episode, we're inching toward that goal. The more people that listen to this show, the more we'll be able to change hearts and minds about what needs to change so we can best serve our youth. So if you haven't already, tweet about us, share this podcast in any way you prefer. We appreciate your listenership and support as always. Enjoy today's show. Our topic today is the juvenile public defense system in Michigan. In part one of our show, we'll talk about how public defenders for kids came to be, what they do, how their job differs from public defenders for adults, and we'll also talk about why public defenders sometimes get pushback. It's not common, but it does happen. We want to address that. We're going to grapple with those objections in a serious way. And then in part two of our show, we'll talk about how a few of the main problems in Michigan's juvenile defense system appear. In part three, I'll briefly go over the steps Michigan might take to address some of those problems. And we'll wrap up today's show with a quick update on juvenile life without parole in Michigan. If you tuned in last season, we talked about the Supreme Court cases that led to the elimination of mandatory juvenile life without parole sentences. But we also mentioned that the work wasn't over. Well, at the end of July last year, the Michigan Supreme Court ruled in three cases about the way juvenile life without parole sentences should be handled in our state. But first... We'll talk about the 1967 Supreme Court decision in Ray Galt. Number 116, in the matter of application of Paul L. Galt et al. One cannot talk about the public defense system or due process in general for youth without talking about in Ray Galt. In 1964, 15-year-old Gerald Galt and his friend were taken into custody by police after a neighbor complained that he made an obscene phone call to her at home. He was taken before a juvenile court commissioner who questioned him without giving him notice of the charges against him and notice of the right to counsel in particular. The widely known decision, Miranda versus Arizona, otherwise would have provided those notices, but this situation was handled differently because Galt was still a minor. And at that time, the due process clauses of the 14th and 5th Amendments did not apply to kids. Galt was ordered to be held in a juvenile detention facility and was not told when or if he would be released. His family wasn't notified of the hearing and they weren't allowed to attend. And his commitment was based solely on the testimony of the woman that he called and the court's own findings of fact. The Supreme Court took this case to review whether the proceedings that led to Galt's commitment were fundamentally unfair and whether Arizona's law under which Galt had been committed was unconstitutional. 
As you might imagine, the court held that Galt's constitutional rights had been violated. Justice Abe Fortas authored the opinion of the court. It was an 8-1 opinion. And it's important to mention that he was the one to do this in particular. Just years before, in 1963, Justice Fortas, then just an attorney, had been on the legal team for Clarence Gideon, whose name might sound familiar to you if you're piped into the Supreme Court's history. The Supreme Court decision in Gideon versus Wainwright is the one you might be thinking of. In that case, the Supreme Court held that the Sixth Amendment of the United States Constitution guarantees the right to counsel for defendants in criminal cases, and that states must provide a lawyer to defendants who cannot afford one. So now, as a justice of the United States Supreme Court, Justice Fortas authored the court's opinion for In Ray Galt. Here's a boy, let's suppose uh, he uh, telephoned this lady and uh, said some lewd things over the telephone. Uh, he was picked up. And uh, then he has this, uh, whatever you want to call it, a hearing or whatnot. And uh, the end of it is that he's sent away for a maximum of six years. Now, if an adult had done exactly the same thing, he would have been arrested. He would have been tried. He would have been given due process. He would have uh, uh, had a right against self-incrimination. He would have had the possibility of appeal. There would have been a transcript. There would have been notice and writing. Burden would have been on the state to establish his guilt uh, beyond reasonable doubt. There would have been confrontation of witnesses, all because he's an adult. And the most he could have been uh, put away for is two months. Now, here's a boy that gets picked up, and he gets none of these safeguards, no confrontation, although certainly this is at the very least a murky record as to whether he admitted his, uh, that he did it. And he gets uh, sent up for maximum possibility of being deprived of his freedom for six years. Why do you call one a crime and not the other a crime? The court held that the proceedings that led to Galt's commitment were fundamentally unfair and that the Arizona state law under which Galt had been committed was unconstitutional. Specifically, the court established that kids accused of crimes have the right to counsel, protection against self-incrimination, and many other due process protections in juvenile court proceedings, a lot like adults. On page 36 of the opinion, Justice Fortas said, a proceeding where the issue is whether the child will be found to be quote-unquote delinquent and subjected to the loss of his liberty for years is comparable in seriousness to a felony prosecution, and that the child quote, requires the guiding hand of counsel at every step in the proceedings against him, end quote. This sounds logical today, but at the time, this was a monumental shift in legal policy. The court also said that the child and his parents must be notified of the child's right to be represented by counsel retained by them, or if they're unable to afford counsel, that counsel will be appointed to represent the child. I think it's hard to overstate just how monumental this was. 
And that in 1967 is where the constitutional right to a defense attorney was incorporated for youth minors. Today, more than 55 years on, we are going to talk about how that constitutional right to counsel has actually materialized for kids in Michigan. Decisions by the Supreme Court are not self-enforcing, just like we saw with Miller versus Alabama in the juvenile life without parole cases. This one is no exception. So we'll start by answering the main question. What is a public defender? A lot of people have a vague understanding of what this is through popular culture and other things. But we're going to tackle this question in a more detailed way. And this question actually has more layers than you might expect. Public defenders are attorneys appointed by the court to represent kids accused of crimes who are unable to afford legal representation. This is the same model as the public defender in the adult system, but the focus of the system is completely different. The juvenile legal system is meant to focus on rehabilitation and restoration of the child to a healthy and productive life. And adult trials don't have that same focus. Right now, there is no state-level funding for juvenile defense work at trial. In counties where there is a network of public juvenile defense, those attorneys work with youth and their families to build a case and help the youth achieve the best outcome for them. We'll get into how that sometimes does not work in part three of the show, but suffice it to say that in several ways, both substantively and procedurally, juvenile defense is very different from adult defense. At the appellate level in Michigan, we have the State Appellate Defender Office, or SADO, which was established in 1979 with the Appellate Defender Act. Under that law, SADO handles at least a quarter of criminal defense appellate cases for those that can't afford legal representation. These are appellate attorneys who work full-time on these cases. Then there's also the Michigan Appellate Assigned Counsel System, or MAX, which is comprised of attorneys from across the state that are willing to accept cases. These are private attorneys, but they've signed up to be a part of this system. Max and Sato merged in 2015, and specifically with regard to juvenile justice, their work is focused mainly on juvenile lifers. However, and we'll get into this a little bit at the end of the show, they might be moving into the youth appellate work field in a bigger way. I wanna take a moment here to highlight some of the pushback about juvenile public defenders because I think it's important to understand the arguments and refute them properly. Critics contend that the juvenile legal system should not be adversarial. By adversarial, in the simplest of terms, what I mean is that there is a prosecution present and then there's a defense present and then the judge is there. And that is what people criticize. The judge and the prosecutor are supposed to be aiming for the best interests of the youth anyway, the argument goes. So why complicate the process and increase costs? Having a public defense system, one might argue, is complicating the process such that the best interest of the child is not always reached. Instead, experts and professionals could evaluate the situation in an impartial way, work with the judge and the prosecutor to ensure that the right outcome is reached. In such a scenario, we could get rid of the adversarial system, save money, and be more efficient. And I actually tend to agree in an ideal scenario that a non-adversarial juvenile justice system has merit. MCYJ supports restorative justice practices and access to early diversion resources to keep kids out of court. 
But that's not what our system look, looks like today. The problem Justice Ford has outlined in the Galt decision persists as long as the government is on one side and a child's liberties, freedoms, and future are at stake, the child must have legal representation. I'm sure our position is with respect to a lawyer, with respect to, to, to the various other uh, constitutional protections that we believe to be fundamental, that the absence of a lawyer does not mean that we'll have a harmonious, informal, non-adversary proceeding. Instead, it means that we'll have a one-sided adversary proceeding a one-sided adversary proceeding in which the cards are stacked against the child from beginning to end. I also reject the idea that there's a trade-off between public defenders in the adult system and the juvenile system. Funding for public defenders in the adult system is also a problem. And while MCYJ doesn't work on it specifically, we partner with a number of organizations who do work on that. Having competent, well-trained, and well-resourced attorneys in the public defense system altogether is a positive thing, full stop. The goal overall is to reduce or eliminate unjust outcomes, and it's never too early or too late in a person's life to do that. The one argument I will make here is that the data show that justice-involved youth that don't have favorable outcomes the first time that they're in trouble often wind back up in the system when they're adults. More than just a band-aid, the proper funding of the juvenile public defender system is really an investment in the future of our public defense system. When we come back in part two, we'll discuss some of the problem areas in the juvenile defense system in Michigan. Stay tuned. As a consequence of Michigan's decentralized juvenile justice system, which we've talked about at length on this podcast, the experience of justice-involved kids varies substantially depending on where they're from. And much of that is due to county resources, but some of that comes from each county's standards. Particularly with regard to juvenile defense, the fact that standards are not uniform across the state means some of the problems we're about to discuss are more pronounced than others depending on where you look. First up, waiver of counsel. The Juvenile Justice Task Force identified waivers of counsel as one of the big problems in Michigan's juvenile defense system. Due to the high pressures of the court system, youth will often waive certain rights, including the right to counsel. Michigan does not currently restrict that ability the same way other states do, and that means that they don't end up getting an accurate picture of what their options are or possible outcomes. Youth might accept plea deals or admit to something that's not true. Waivers of counsel in any case, including adult cases, are not advisable. But in particular with juvenile cases, the system is so unfamiliar and complicated that failing to consult with an attorney can have great long-term consequences. But this isn't a problem in some other states. Iowa, for example, prohibits waivers of counsel for those under 16 altogether. A study in 2016 found that youth waive their Miranda rights that I discussed earlier at a rate of 90%. I'll link that in the show notes. The court in Miranda held that police must inform suspects in custody of their right to remain silent, their right to an attorney before questioning them. This has led to many instances where youth in Michigan gave up their Miranda rights without even being able to consult an adult. 
In 2021, then-Representative Sarah Anthony, now Senator, introduced a bill, House Bill 4873, which sought to ensure that youth were fully aware of their rights and able to consult with an adult or an attorney prior to waiving any rights. The bill stalled in the House, but it was one step toward changing the nature of juvenile interrogations. Of course, that's only the first step in a much longer adjudication process. The task force also identified the lack of statewide funding for juvenile defense as a problem. The Michigan Indigent Defense Commission Act, which mainly lays out how adults who can't afford legal representation can get access to legal representation, does have a provision for certain youth, but that's only when they're in adult court. On the other hand, it provides defense counsel for adult criminal defendants whenever it's needed. When the National Juvenile Defender Center reviewed Michigan's juvenile defense system, it found, quote, juvenile defense practices in Michigan are not subject to any state standards, receive no state funding, and have no consistent effective monitoring or enforcement mechanisms in place to ensure youth receive effective counsel at all critical stages, end quote. The Michigan Task Force on Juvenile Justice found the same thing, stating in their report last year, that this leads to, quote, significant variations in local systems in terms of accessibility to trained, qualified defenders, the types of services that are available, and when in the court process, counsel is appointed, end quote. Statewide funding is just as important for ensuring uniform access as it is to uniform outcomes. Funding public defense for kids consistently across the state would be a step toward ensuring that the best outcomes are reached for every kid for their circumstances. And the last problem I want to highlight is whether the child feels like they were heard. One of the most traumatic aspects of being justice involved is the feeling of a lack of agency. The court orders outcomes for kids and they have no recourse but legal avenues. And this is why defense counsel is tasked with building the case and advocating for the youth's expressed interest rather than their quote-unquote best interests. That's the job of the prosecuting attorney and the judge. But the defense attorney's job is to speak for the client and do what the client expresses as their wishes. The National Juvenile Defense Standards, which I'll link in the show notes, make this quite explicit. They say that the counsel's primary and fundamental responsibility is to advocate for clients' expressed interests. And they can't substitute their view or the parent's view of what's in the best interest of the client. And if the attorney believes that the youth's expressed interest will not lead to the best long-term outcome, they can try to convince the youth but they must still act in accordance with the client's expressed interests through the end. That's their job. Plea deals and confinement are common examples of this dynamic. Youth must have the ability to communicate effectively to the court through their lawyer. A failure in that system might mean a child ends up in out-of-home placement or renders an admission that they didn't mean to. But this is still a common problem in Michigan, as fundamental as it sounds. Last year, the Governor's Task Force on Juvenile Justice Reform conducted listening sessions where they discovered that many youth that went through the system were not satisfied with the level of attention and counsel they received from their attorneys. Here is Stephanie Shaw from the Council on State Governments in one of the task force's public meetings. Youth also reported not just parents having quick conversations 
but several youth really noted how they felt their attorney was really ill-prepared to advocate for them um, and did not feel like they had their best interests in mind. In some focus groups with youth in a state facility, um, they noted how they felt like the prosecutor and the judge and the referee had more of their interests in mind than their attorney and even their probation officer sometimes. MCYJ Executive Director Jason Smith, who was also a member of that task force, also shared his thoughts at that meeting. Across the board in the listening sessions, like the, the parents said that their defense attorneys were just like a non-factor. And, and I remember one of the first presentations we had was what was a, a member of Justice Impacted Youth as a part of this, this task force, who the last question someone asked about a defense attorney, he's like, I can't even remember. Like, so obviously they had no impact on my case whatsoever. Just like excessively allowing waivers of counsel, lack of adequate or meaningful legal representation is just as much a failure of the state's constitutional obligation to provide legal representation to youth. More to the point, it's expensive. Fixing it on appeal is not always easy or effective when it's even possible, and a lot of the time it's impossible to begin with. In summary, that's three big problems that we need to address. Waivers of the right to counsel, the lack of statewide funding or standards, and the lack of effective representation of youth's interests. These problems are big, yes, but other states have been able to solve them. And in part three of our show, we'll talk about what MCYJ is advocating in terms of solutions to these problems. Hey everyone, Hussein here. I just wanted to take a minute in the middle of our show to highlight the publications page on our website. It's where you can dive deeper into each of our topics. You can learn about the information, the data that we are talking about. We recently just published a report titled Locked Up Too Long, Justice Impacted Young People Who Can't Go Home. As part of our Advancing Justice Project, MCYJ discovered that in Wayne County, there are no foster care placements for LGBTQ plus justice involved young people and very few available alternative living options for justice involved youth in general. Realizing this was a systemic problem about which little was known, we initiated a series of interviews and data collection to discover and report on its scope. You can learn more about that topic and our other projects at miyouthjustice.org forward slash publications. Welcome back to the table, Conversations on Youth Justice. This is part three of our show on the public defense system for youth in Michigan. So far, we've talked about why the public defense system exists, and we've talked about some of the problems with the public defense system for youth in Michigan. In part three of our show, we're going to discuss some of the solutions to those problems that MCYJ is advocating. 
With this new legislative landscape, MCYJ is working with partners and stakeholders to push for legislation that would enact many of the task force's recommendations. Particularly with regard to juvenile defense, MCYJ is advocating for the expansion of Michigan Indigent Defense Commission to, quote, include development, oversight, and compliance with youth defense standards and local county defense systems, end quote. This recommendation received unanimous support from the task force. If adopted by the legislature, it would go a long way toward ensuring that youth have the opportunity to fully evaluate their options at the outset of the case. Sado, who we talked about earlier in the show, requested about $557,000 to expand its juvenile defense work in line with the task force's recommendations. This would mean that their appellate work could include much more than just the juvenile lifer unit. And the importance of juvenile appellate work cannot be overstated. It ensures that the law is applied in a standardized way across the state. The ability to ensure that one's adjudication was fair and in line with the constitutional and legal standards that we expect only goes to confirming the legitimacy of our system. But mostly, it ensures that kids get the best outcome they can. MCYJ is also advocating that we change the law in our state, or at least amend court rules, to allow for youth to consult with an attorney prior to waiving their right to counsel. In some cases, yes, an attorney is not needed. There are certain cases where it can be handled quickly, but the risk of being able to waive that right to counsel at an early stage in a way where the youth does not fully understand what they're waving away, that needs to be curtailed. And so MCYJ is advocating for a way to restrict that ability just a little bit to ensure that folks fully understand what they're giving up at the time that they give it up. I also mentioned before that the Michigan Indigent Defense Commission is something that MCYJ is advocating should be expanded. And that's one of two groups that MCYJ believes needs to be better informed about youth's outcomes. In part, MCYJ is advocating that the MIDC should have commissioners who are knowledgeable about youth defense, because if it's expanded to include youth work, then the commissioners should be aware of what the nature of that work is. MCYJ is also advocating for training on juvenile justice for prosecutors. Prosecutors are in a position where they're not often dealing with youth. In a lot of situations, the prosecutor's main work is focused on the adult system, understandably. But in the event that they do work with youth, MCYJ believes that they should be well-educated about the national understanding of how the juvenile justice system should be administered. They should be up to date on the science that informs MCYJ's work and a lot of national organizations that work on the same subject. And taken together, those changes could dramatically transform the juvenile defense system in the state of Michigan. It would make the courtroom a safer place for youth in our state. And most importantly, it would increase the integrity of the juvenile justice system.
And now a quick update on juvenile life without parole in Michigan. And perhaps we can end our show on a more positive note today. I want to highlight two cases the court handed down, People versus Parks and People versus Taylor. In both cases, the Michigan Supreme Court was reviewing life sentences without the possibility of parole for youth. In Parks, the court held that mandatory sentences of life without parole violated Michigan's constitution. The court re-emphasized a distinction between Michigan's Constitution and the United States Constitution, which we've mentioned before on the show. The oft-quoted Eighth Amendment to the United States Constitution provides that, quote, excessive bail shall not be required, nor excessive fines imposed, nor cruel and unusual punishments inflicted, end quote. On the other hand, Michigan's Constitution, quote, prohibits cruel or unusual punishment, end quote, which the court reasons provides broader protection than the Eighth Amendment. And what determines what's cruel or unusual? Well, the court directs us to science, which was the basis for distinguishing between youth and adults in the first place. Because youth are still developing mentally, they are more subject to impulses and risk-taking. This has to be taken into account when sentencing them, of course. And therefore, the court holds that, quote, mandatorily subjecting 18-year-old defendants to life in prison without first considering the attributes of youth is unusually excessive imprisonment. Thus, automatic life without parole for this class of defendants is a disproportionate sentence, end quote. In People v. Taylor, the court discussed the burden that a prosecutor must meet for a youth defendant to be sentenced to life without parole. The prosecutor now must meet the second highest burden of proof when they're trying to show that a sentence without parole is not disproportionate. If they can't show that by quote-unquote clear and convincing evidence, then the youth may be sentenced to a number of years instead. At the end of that opinion, the court reiterates that such sentences should be rare. We couldn't agree more. Both of these decisions are steps in the right direction, and perhaps in future episodes when the dust settles and the practical effect of these decisions is felt, we can revisit them. I'll link to the decisions and Sato summary in the show notes if you'd like to learn more. And that's our show today. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you have questions, don't hesitate to write in. For more information about the podcast and the show notes from this episode, check out our show page at miyouthjustice.org forward slash the table. This show is written and produced by me, Hussein Hadri. Our theme music is Wasted Education by Blue Topaz. This show is the copyrighted work of the Michigan Center for Youth Justice. Thank you for joining us for this episode. We'll talk to you next month.